Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This podcast was first posted on February 20th, 2016. Umberto Eco, who died on February 19th, 2016 at the age of 84, was one of the world's leading semiologists studying the relationship of signs and symbols to meaning and language. He was also a well-known and well-respected novelist. The Name of the Rose, a detective novel set in the Middle Ages, became a surprise bestseller, and he followed it up with Foucault's Pendulum and five later novels. On June 15, 2005, I had a chance to sit down with Umberto Eco in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for his novel, The Mysterious Flame of Queen Loana. His English was good, though it was clearly not his mother tongue. You are known as a semiotician, and all of your books reflect semiotics. So let's start by asking, what exactly is semiotics? First of all, I spent the last uh, 30 years in writing a lot of books uh, about that topics and without reaching a definite conclusion. So I can summarize it uh, in few words. Let's say that is is a more than than a science, a, a sort of field of interconnected uh, approaches to all the, the ways we use in order to communicate. So not only language, but uh, images uh, and uh, uh, narration and so on and so forth, trying to see if there is a certain common ground, a common mechanism either of our mind, of our brain, of our culture in general that unifies all those uh, things, uh, all those ways to transmit meanings to each other. You know, when when I get uh, the the question uh, if there is a semiotic influence on my novels, uh, I usually answer no. As far as I am concerned, when I start writing a novel, I feel like in a vacation situation. I am not obliged to think of my academic uh, work. Not only I don't want to make uh, theoretical abstract plans. I start from an image in writing a novel. But my readers afterwards find a lot of connections between my academic work and my novels, which is not so uh, incredible because I am not a, such a split personality. I am not a schizo person, and so it's evident that there is a connection. But it is not the result of a conscious uh, project. I don't consider my novel illustrations of my theories or my theories reflections of my novels. But it, it does come through, and and in reading the various novels, we see this examination of signs and meaning yes, and metaphor. Yes, I mean, it, it follows through in every single one of your books. Now, I, I, I say that it is not on purpose. It is not a cold decision. In your collection of essays on literature, you do talk about the relationship of a novel's story or plot 
and the subtexts of the novel, which is what we're talking about here, various kinds of subtexts, and that the subtext could be conscious or could be unconscious or may not even be part of the writer's decision-making process. Well, I, I used to say that uh, sometime a book, not necessarily a novel or a poem, but even in a, in a book of essays, is uh, frequently more intelligent than his uh, or her author. I make you a, a typical example, something that happens when dealing with my translators. I collaborate with my translators for, for, for many evident reasons, uh, because I, I think that translation is important. And uh, being a sabbatician, translation is a subject matter that concerns me directly. It happens sometimes that my translators say that this sentence this passage is pretty ambiguous. And you have uh, four possible answers. In certain cases, you're right, I misuse my my, my language. It it, it is awkward. Please, I didn't want to be ambiguous uh, translating in a a very clear way. I will maybe correct my my Italian edition for the second or third edition. The second answer could be, I wanted to, to be ambiguous. Okay, and so please, Keep the same ambiguity in in your your translation. But the third case is, I didn't want to be ambiguous. But certainly, your reading is is okay. My text was ambiguous. And this ambiguity is uh, fruitful, is enormously interesting. So keep it in your translation. But uh, that is a case in which the text is more intelligent than its author. (laughs) Do you find when you're writing a book... At all, and I could see it a little bit, you know, in in Queen Loana, though maybe in in a book like Island of the Day Before, it's even stronger. Where, I mean, you can't be blind to your own interest popping up there. Do you have to sometimes suppress your own feelings about the subtext of what you're writing? Well, it's very difficult uh, to to answer because sometimes when you realize that there can be a, a, a wrong interpretation or, or a misinterpretation or a hyperinterpretation, I try to reduce it. I, I make you a, a very uh, typical example. Uh, my novel, The Foucault's Pendulum, has this title because the inventor of the pendulum was Foucault. If the inventor was Franklin, the title would have been the Franklin's uh, Pendulum. But since uh, uh, the novel is uh, uh, about a certain discussion uh, that can remind the reader of Michel Foucault, I immediately had the feeling that somebody could have interpreted Foucault like a reference to Foucault. And so... I introduced in the in the text uh, many many hints in order to make it clear that I, I was talking of Leon Foucault and not of Michel Foucault. But I couldn't stop readers to find uh, connections, and probably some connections are there. I read Foucault. Ten and more years before writing uh, the pendulum, those connections would have been there, even though the title was the Franklin's <laughs> pendulum. But if it was the Franklin's pendulum, nobody would have <laughs> remarked those uh, those uh, analogies. Well, they may have come up with different ones at that point because then there are different resonances. I mean, you know, the ultimate example is Finnegan's Wake, where everything refers to everything. Yes, but this is uh, on purpose, but. I have to insist uh, on a 
a theoretical uh, point. I, I have always been interested in what is called now reader-oriented uh, criticism of a continuous interaction between a, a text and its uh, readers. And I started in 1962 with that book uh, that in English was uh, the open work and published it later. But, but at a certain point, I felt the risk of intending this cooperation as a sort of overwhelming power of the reader that can do everything he or she was of a text. And I always said, no, uh, the text is something that exists there before you're reading. Right. You are free to interpret it in different ways. It's difficult to say whether interpretation is a good one, but it's easy to say even interpretation is a bad one. There is a typical case I discussed in one of my essays, I don't remember uh, which one, published in English too, of a clear misinterpretation of Finnegan's Wake. It was a long debate on the fact that at a certain point Joyce mentioned Beria. And since a few pages before he had mentioned something linked to Hitler, like the Anschluss and so on, so people said, oh, is the Beria the, the Soviet uh, minister? Then some critics said, but you know, Beria became a minister after the publication of Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> so Joyce couldn't quote that. Uh, others say, oh no, Joyce had a prophetic virtue. <laughs> and finally, finally, another critic discovered that a few pages before, one page before, Joyce was mentioning Joseph, the Bible, Joseph, and, and Beria was one of his brothers. So the connection was a biblical one. No doubt it would have been a false interpretation to connect Joyce with, uh, with the Soviet Union in that case because it was far-fetched, uh, so to speak. Umberto Eco, your latest novel, The Mysterious Flame of Queen Loana, deals with a character named Yambo who has lost memory of his own life. However, he retains the memory of everything that he read. Which is scientifically uh, correct. I mean, there are many clinical cases of this kind. <laughs> the book is divided into three sections. And it struck me that they seem to reflect, I don't know how conscious this was, three stages of knowledge. The first is being told something. The second is finding it out for oneself. And the third is remembering it. Yes. I realized only later that it was a, a sort of early sonata in three, in three movements. Uh, even though not following exactly the rules of the genre, right? let's say an allegro and andante and an adagio. But I was um, pretty conscious uh, in writing of the fact that the first part is, well, the situation of a man who has lost his memory. I enjoyed also imagining possible situations, you know, at a certain point. He cannot remember, he 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 had a love affair with his beautiful and young assistant. And it's an embarrassing situation because being a gentleman, he cannot ask. <laughs> she knows that he has lost his memory. And she, if something happens, she cannot speak. <laughs> I try to imagine several, uh, several possible situations. In the second, in a way, it was for me the, the, the most important part because the character going in the attic uh, in his uh, countryside home doesn't reconstruct his own memory because he's working on a sort of a mineral or paper memory, comic books, school books, uh, records, uh, newspapers. And in doing that, he's reconstructing the memory of his generation. That's why I insist uh, when people say, ah, this is an autobiography, say no. 
I gave my character a lot of my personal memories because we have the same age and so and so forth, and we lived uh, the same 30s and 40s during the dictatorship in Italy. But uh, it was important to me to make a sort of generational retrieval, and that's also the function of the illustrations because they are evidences that of certain historical material that belongs to to the entire generation. The third part, as you said, is on, on the contrary for the majority of our listeners who have not read read the book. Uh, he has a second... He, he, he lost his memory because of a, of a first uh, a stroke. He has clearly a second stroke. He enters a coma where, while outside, they believe he is uh, in a flat uh, uh, situation, he step-by-step uh, step retrieves his personal memories, including the memory of his first love and so and so forth. I don't say how the book ends because me too, I am not so sure <laughs> of the way it ends. There are those three movements, lost memory, collective memory, personal uh, memory. The second part deals mostly with the propaganda yes. and the elements of propaganda, which coming back again to work in semiotics, reminded me of the work a little bit of George Lakoff in dealing in America with metaphor and politics. Uh, certainly, I, I know very well the work of George. We are, uh, we are friends. I, I consider George Lakoff a semiotician, even he okay. doesn't know, like uh, Monsieur Jourdain in Moliere, who was making prose without knowing it. It's important uh, to, to use all the technical paraphernalia of linguistics, of semiotics, of rhetoric, also in order to understand how the political discourse uh, works in our days. In the 70s, and since I was in this country in that period, uh, the, the Watergate uh, period, I made an analysis of the um, last uh, Nixon speech when he tries, tried to justify himself. And uh, making a sort of parallel analysis of the classical structure of a Western movie by demonstrating that he was using the same uh, techniques. And in a way, he could have convinced his listener, except that he was not speaking by radio, but speaking by TV. And the text of the speech was, according to me, perfectly organized in order to convince people. But his face and his hands were contrasting what he was saying. Well, you see, it's always possible to, to, to make this kind of, of analysis also because uh, one of the best pieces in linguistic analysis was the, the, the analysis made by the great related uh, linguist Roman Jakobson on the Antony speech in Shakespeare. And he makes a marvelous analysis of the uses of metaphors and metonym, metonymies and, and so on. And it's also a way to educate people to read between the lines. One of the aspects of my story in the second part is when the Yambo realizes how his grandfather was reading the fascist newspapers between the lines. It was always possible to understand what really happened, even though they were lying. And reading between the lines is, is enormously, enormously important because makes the reader or the listener free in comparison with the source of, uh, of information. Many years ago, I was working in the newsroom at this radio station, and um, 
What I was told is when reading articles to compose it, now this is, of course, KPFA, it's non-commercial Pacifica Radio, uh, in trying to compose a story, what I was told is that if you look at your sources, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, the story is there, but the headline they give, the lead, is usually not. So it's your job to find that lead, and it, it reminds me of the same idea, which if you look carefully, the information is there, but you have to find it. That almost makes, in some respects, propaganda comparable, say, to reading a novel then. Yes. Uh, there is an example uh, I make uh, in the second part when uh, Yambo finds uh, the newspapers during the first months of the Second World War, and they are a lot of news about Italians that are beating English uh, uh, army south of Ethiopia and with maps showing how. Then one day without maps, they say the good resistance of Italian on the northern side of Ethiopia. And if you read between the lines, you understand that the English invaded Ethiopia from north, but it was not told and the map disappeared. Otherwise, it would have been clear what happened. Do you think that uh, even with the more sophisticated propaganda of today, the same holds true? You know, somebody told during a debate on the new technologies and information that if Internet existed during the Second World War, the Holocaust would have been would have been possible because a major circulation of information would have changed probably even the plans uh, uh, of the Nazi. I don't know. It, it's true, but certainly all those that after the war said I didn't know couldn't because uh, with the internet. So this circulation of information today is a good therapy because you can lie through a certain uh, channel, but you are immediately counteracted uh, by, by, by another channel. So the plurality of channels is always a way to make a more fruitful comparison between the, the, the way of giving news. But at the same time, you've got this plethora of information, this enormous amount of information. A, you need to sort it. That's another uh, problem. I have written a lot about that fact that before internet uh, we were able to select uh, information because uh, if I buy the, the New York Times by the title I understand what is more or less the, the, the line, uh, the ideological pension uh, of the and if I buy a book uh, let's say published by Columbia University Press I know that probably uh, the text has been checked uh, pretty well uh, if not it wouldn't have been published while with internet, you, you, you don't know how much reliable is your source. And if you are an expert in a certain domain, you can check. Well, if I consult internet, let's say, on some philosophical subject, I realize immediately the emitter is the mad one or, or something. But if I did something similar in chemistry, I have no instruments to, to, to tell what happens with a young man who has not the instruments to, to, to select uh, and to filter information. That is an important uh, problem and a great risk. But we started speaking, let's say, of, of the political information, information about events. The news about a, a given event in any case uh, circulate. Then you can ask uh, whether the, 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 the source is reliable or not. But it, it, it is true because uh, 
a young person could uh, receive from internet all the protocols of the elders of Sion, of Sion as a true document. And if there is no bigger authority saying, pay attention, that's a fake. So one of the problems of the school of tomorrow would be to tell those new techniques of selection, but we don't know them as yet. So it's a, it's a, it's a great educational problem too. Also because people is so is so fond of uh, false uh, plots. Uh, <laughs> they take him seriously the Da Vinci code. They don't know that all this stuff was sold uh, in in the in the bookstore since uh, 50 years uh, about occult uh, stuff. They take it seriously. Uh, and people are always uh, fond of plots, but you know Karl uh, Popper wrote an important essay saying that people needs to imagine uh, plots and conspiracy in order don't to feel responsible for what they are doing. <laughs> well, I, I wonder if it's also in order to kind of feel that there's some kind of intelligence out there guiding, whether even if it's a bad intelligence, at least it's being guided somehow. You know, is that story of traffic jams on the highway. When you are in the middle of a traffic jam on the highway, you say, but they the government, uh, they don't do what they should in order... No, because the fault is mine. If, if I didn't take the car <laughs> on Saturday <laughs> night, I wouldn't be in a traffic jam, and the traffic jam would have not been uh, produced. So in order to justify the fact that I am in the result of my own choice, I try desperately to imagine a conspiracy. <laughs> is that, in, in, in your ruminations on that, is that, in a sense, Umberto Eco, the origins of Foucault's pendulum? Yes, exactly that. Foucault's pendulum is the story. I, I wrote it always remembering uh, this uh, definition of Chesterton, when people do not believe any longer in God, it is not that they believe in nothing, they believe in everything. <laughs> Do you think um, the success of the Da Vinci Code has to do with what's going on in the world today, or, or if a book like that had come out 15 years ago? I know Foucault's Pendulum was successful, too, but yes. this is successful beyond yes, but belief. Foucault's Pendulum, it was clear that it was a grotesque representation right. of this way of thinking, why Da Vinci Code takes this way of thinking as a, a good one. Yes, I am sure that if published 10 or 15 years ago, he wouldn't have had such a success, because I repeat, uh, there existed already Bajent and Lincoln and a lot of other books that were telling the same story. And even if you consider that certainly Dan Brown writes very well, he, he made a good uh, page turner, it's not enough to justify the success in a era of complete discomfort in face of everything happens, terrorism. And after 9-11, yes, it was easier to take uh, seriously another uh, plot. This, uh, yes, I, in, in the same way in which what happened justifies a certain return of fundamentalism and so on and so forth, certainly. Umberto Eco, in looking at all of your books, I keep finding these connections. So, Bordolino is about lying or, yes. or telling tales. Mysterious Flame of Queen Loana comes at it at a different angle. And I wonder. Yes, it's about truth. It's about truth. And <laughs> he I wants wonder. to find his own identity. <laughs> but it's also to find the identity of Italy itself yes, yes. and of Italy's relationship to truth. And I'm wondering 
what that connection is, if any, between writing a book like Bordolino and getting to a book right afterward like uh, Queen Luana? I don't know. You could ask Homer why in a book he described the siege of a city and the second, uh, the, the, the trips of <laughs> the first. They are two different subjects. The Mysterious Flame has to do with a quest for truth because being a biographical book, if not strictly autobiographical, about the search for an identity, obviously the theme was that. While Baudolino, but in the same way as the Foucault's Pendulum, was about how the big lies can create a culture, society, history. In any case, the quest for truth in Loana is at the same moment also the confrontation of the protagonist and of the generation with the big lie of the dictatorship. So how they succeeded in escaping the big lie. You know that Federico Fellini, the movie maker, was older than me, but so means that he lived all the fascist years completely more than, than me, but I got out at the age of 13. Once said to a friend, if with the kind of education we received, we have not become complete idiots, it was a miracle. In a way, my novel is uh, the effort uh, to show that it was not a miracle. There were the elements for the, and I tried to explain how even a young man, a boy, was in the same moment, the same day of the same year, submitted to the fascist song, to the, to, to, to the hammering propaganda rhetoric uh, of, of the regime, and on the other side, reading other books and even American comic strips and movies and so on. And at a certain point, I or my Yambo say, ah, we had a schizophrenic education. Yes, it was a schizophrenic education, but this sort of uh, schizophrenic input was the one that uh, stopped uh, the generation to become complete idiots, at least the 50% of them. <laughs> <laughs> Over the past 50 years, People have gone back and re-examined. Why do you think it took Italy so long, or maybe over here it only appears that it did, to really re-examine its fascist past? No, I wouldn't say so. Italy made uh, its own uh, exam of uh, consciousness, certainly a lot before Germany, and even before France, that with the Vichy period, they have still certain problems. I mean... The public uh, historiography immediately examined all all the the, the documents. Uh, What happens today in which the right and even the extreme right are at the government, they are trying to revise the same documents. They are not discovering something, something new, simply in order to interpret them from the other point of view and to look for a final justification. Let's say even those who lost, uh, they were in good fa- faith, which is, which is true. Most of them were absolutely in good faith. Uh, simply they were, uh, they were fighting on the wrong, on the wrong side. Right. And even from the extreme right, they are not trying to say that it was the right side because it, it was the Nazi uh, side. They uh, insist in saying they were in good faith. They acted as uh, men of honor which in many cases was true, and even the partisans committed uh, some uh, even massacres. 
which cannot be denied because in the civil war, <laughs> even in the American civil war, uh, the, 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 on both sides <laughs> there were right. horrible, horrible things perpetrated. So it's a sort of revisionism, not so much of the, of the events, but of the intentions. But uh, I insist all the major documents were there. Today, the great discussion is who ordered the execution of Giovanni Gentile, the fascist philosophers. It's clear that he was, uh, he was killed by the partisans and he was killed. The only problem is who took the, the first uh, decision, things, things like that. But not, so, no, it is not the discovery of new, of new incredible uh, document putting the whole story uh, upside down. Well, now we are in 2005. How long do you think it's going to take for things that happened 50 years ago to finally... I mean, I'm wondering about this. People are still fighting the Vietnam War here in the United States. And I keep thinking, back in the 1930s in America, we weren't fighting the Spanish-American War. We'd stopped. And yet these events are still happening, and they're still examining World War II. I would say that uh, one has to wait for all the witnesses die. Since a boy like me is still alive, there are still alive people who really fought the war. But maybe it's not enough, because I have seen years ago in France a young, beautiful journalist interviewing me, and she had the badge of the Sacré-Cœur Vendée, war against the French Revolution. So she was linked to this monarchic ideal, absolutely reactionary uh, ideal, two centuries, two centuries after the, the events uh, happened. So maybe this Spanish-American war was not so... It didn't touch so profoundly the, 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 the American soul, but you are still discussing about the civil war, because it touched and hurt you in your bellies and so it depends on the on the on the and, and, and the same is for 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 vietnam when something uh, but while uh, nobody remembers uh, suffers for what theodore roosevelt did <laughs> right umberto echo your first novel came kind of out of the blue name of the rose you were a noted professor you'd written several academic texts you talked a little bit about it, the idea that suddenly you got this idea you wanted to kill a monk in an abbey. Well, it, it was a boutade. It was a, a way to answer <laughs> a question. I didn't want to kill a monk. And as a matter of fact, I, I, I didn't. Well. But it is true that I start, I was fascinated by an old memory of myself in a Benedictine abbey. I was at the age of 16 there. And I found a marvelous library with uh, stained glass uh, windows, and there was a lectern in which I was turning the, the, the pages of an, an old book or a manuscript that I was fascinated by. And one day I had the idea, not of myself, but of a monk dying while reading a book. And I told you that I start a novel starting by an image. Suddenly a certain image excites my, my mind, and then... I try to invent the plot, but I don't. I don't start from a, a precise idea about the plot. I start from an image, and and then from one year or more, I I draw. I design uh, maps, uh, situations, architectures, uh, 
I have the, the need of setting up a world in order to make my characters to move in. Uh, so I didn't want to, 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 to kill a monk, but I had the idea of a kilk. <laughs> Two ideas that, that suddenly came in. First is Borges' Library of Babel, which is very key. Certainly. And the other is uh, is what we used to say about the book, which is which was it was Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson in the 14th century. <laughs> Certainly, uh, it's not by chance that I called uh, William of Baskerville. Then I repented a little because if I hadn't named him uh, this way and I have had eliminated some references to to Sherlock Holmes. The book would have been uh, the same, but this would have not distracted many (laughs) readers or reviewers. But it happened this way, and I have to accept my fate. When you look at the movie of it, I mean, uh, obviously it's by a different person, it's a different... What do you see of your own work there, then? When I gave the permission for for the movie, I was... uh, conscious from the beginning that it would have been the, the, the job of another person, a free interpretation. So I'm, I, I'm not this kind of others that afterwards start to say, oh, he betrayed my intentions. The only thing that I called, asked expressly was that in the titles, it was a, the name of Rose, a palimpsest from a novel. It means that it was a great script, original manuscript rewritten. Okay. It was not that the problem. It was that afterwards there were millions of people reading the book after having watched the movie. And this is very embarrassing for an author because it means that another person decided to suggest your reader what to see. And it is the, this is the reason why I asked my publisher to refuse for the new novel any possible offer from a movie starting from the principle that the ideal situation was the one of Homer, who had the the movie 2,000 years after the book. (laughs) (laughs) Have you begun working on another novel? Listen, I published this one one year ago in Italian. And usually a book, not only a novel, but a book is like a child. It takes two years in which you have to assist it until he's able to walk on his own its own feet. So it, it's too early to, to, to think of that. When you finish a novel, do you ever think you're going to write another one, or do you kind of just go, well, my God, no, I did when, it? No, when I finish, I say probably this is the last one, yes, because I I don't finish having already an idea for the... And I don't feel pressure. The, the pendulum took me eight years. Uh, the island, uh, six years. I have not one book per year author. I do it only if it comes uh, spontaneously and not on command. After Queen Loana, Umberto Eco would go on to write two more novels. The Name of the Rose, which starred Sean Connery and Christian Slater, was released in 1986 and would be the only film made from his works. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.